Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hello, solutioneers, and welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. This week, we are celebrating the start of Black History Month with a deep dive on the environmental justice, or EJ as it's often called, movement and its historical connection to environmental racism. For decades, black and minority communities have fought against the disproportionate and by no means accidental rate at which harmful factories, production plants, and chemical waste facilities are developed near their homes. In this episode, we hope to help you deepen or refresh your understanding of environmental racism's history and how prevalent it still is in society today. And of course, the roles we can all play to advocate for fairer, equal treatment of these predominantly underrepresented communities in the United States. Our guest this week is Upstream's own Marcel Howard, who serves as our policy analyst and coordinator and came to Upstream with a passion for the environmental justice aspect of our work. Marcel will discuss the history of environmental racism and the EJ movement, how climate change impacts are being disproportionately experienced in these areas, and how this all connects to people's basic quality of life and rights. Marcel will also talk about how this informs the work that Upstream is doing to co-create a beautiful world where all people are treated as indisposable. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode. Happy Black History Month, and Marcel will take it from here. Hey! What's up, Solutioneers? I'm Marcel Howard, the Policy Analyst and Coordinator here at Upstream. Today, in honor of Black History Month, I want to talk to you about the environmental justice movement and what that meant for Black and Brown communities across the United States and what it means to us here at Upstream. The environmental justice movement, or EJ as it's referred to, addresses a statistical fact. People who live, work, and play in America's most polluted environments are commonly people of color and the low income. Environmental justice advocates have continued to show that this is not by accident, as these communities are routinely targeted to host facilities that have vast negative environmental impacts, a landfill, dirty industrial plant, or truck depot, for example. What many refer to as environmental racism is something communities have been battling against for decades. The environmental justice movement was born in the low-income, rural, and majority Black community of Warren County, North Carolina. In 1982, the state created plans for a new hazardous waste landfill in the small community of Afton. Many Afton residents and local advocates were seriously concerned over the potential for polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs, leaching the drinking water supplies. Their concerns were dismissed by the state, which eventually led to the first arrests in U.S., history over the siting of a landfill. When trucks were trying to enter the site, residents and advocates laid down on the roads leading into the landfill to stop them. This was followed by six weeks of marches and nonviolent street protests with more than 500 people arrested. Unfortunately, the people of Warren County lost the battle as the toxic waste was eventually deposited in the landfill. However, even though other communities of color organized against environmental threats in the past, Warren County was considered by many to be the first major milestone in the national movement for environmental justice. Nearly nine years later, the environmental justice movement officially came to the forefront of American politics. In October 1991, the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit met for three days in Washington, D.C. 
The summit brought together hundreds of environmental justice leaders from across North America, and they produced the principles of environmental justice and the principles of working together, which would become two foundational documents of the environmental justice movement. The movement took another huge leap in 1994, when President Bill Clinton made environmental justice a federal government policy. With the signing of Executive Order 12898 on February 11th, federal agencies were mandated to identify and address disproportionately high adverse health or environmental effects of their policies or programs on low-income people and people of color. The executive order also directed federal agencies to look for ways to prevent discrimination by race, color, or national origin, and any federally funded programs dealing with the health or the environment. Over the past two decades, environmental justice organizations have formed across the country to fight against environmental racism. Many of these groups have become deeply rooted in their community's fight for environmental protection and social change. Even so, we are still dealing with the historical scars of an environmentalist movement that has traditionally only incorporated white voices and concepts. One of these scars runs right through one of the most influential cities on the planet and where I currently live now, New York City. Prior to Central Park being built in 1857, there was Manhattan's first significant settlement of black property owners and the epicenter of black political power in Manhattan during the mid-19th century, Seneca Village. Stretching from West 82nd Street to West 89th Street, Seneca Village allowed residents to live away from the more built-up and racially discriminatory sections of downtown Manhattan. Residents of Seneca Village were viewed to be more prosperous and stable than their counterparts, with approximately half of them owning their homes by 1855. With property ownership came the right to vote, as New York State required African-American men to own at least $250 in property and hold residency for at least three years to be able to vote. Of the 100 black New Yorkers eligible to vote in 1845, 10 lived in Seneca Village. Central Park is one of the most recognizable parks in the world. It stretches nearly 51 street blocks and covers approximately 843 acres of land in the middle of Manhattan. Today, you'll see loads of tourists and locals enjoying the beautiful scenery and everything Central Park has to offer. Over recent history, Central Park has been viewed as a win for the wider environmental movement, gaining various nicknames such as the lungs of the city and a fresh air safe haven in the city. However, the creation of Central Park has a very dark history. During the 1850s, the city was grappling with extremely unhealthy urban conditions and wanted to create a space for open recreation. In 1853, the New York State Legislature enacted a law that originally set aside 775 acres of land in Manhattan to create the country's first major landscaped public park. This was greeted as a great opportunity to build upon New York's mission to become a healthier community, but it also openly displaced one of the most important African-American communities of that time. Central Park was eventually developed, and the residents of Seneca Village had their land taken from them through the process of eminent domain. Over the decades that followed, the history of Seneca Village diminished and was all but erased until 2011, when an archaeological excavation of the area uncovered significant remains and artifacts. Seneca Village represents a historical scar from the white environmentalist movement, but those scars have continued to be created to this day. Environmental justice groups across the country continue to fight various prominent issues facing their communities, from lack of access to safe drinking water, to the impacts of extraction of natural resources, to the disproportionate impacts of climate change. These groups are consistently fighting against the creation of further environmental scars that could lead their communities to have the same fate like that of Seneca Village.
Today, we live in a society where corporations have built their business models and supply chains around a culture that embraces a throwaway and disposable paradigm. This paradigm encompasses traditional white environmentalist concepts that have disproportionately affected indigenous communities, communities of color, and lower income communities. Upstream recognizes the negative impacts of such a societal paradigm and believes reuse can be used as a mechanism to pursue a just transition, which refers to building upon an economic and political power shift from an extractive economy to a regenerative economy and approaches production and consumption cycles holistically and waste-free. In addition to being a catalyst for a just transition, reuse can produce strong benefits for impacted communities. Reuse helps reduce overall pollution, toxic chemical exposure, and litter, and can greatly improve the overall living conditions of a community. In addition, reuse creates economic opportunities across the supply chain, where local jobs are the priority and can be created and filled by those in the local community. Lastly, Reuse can be used as a mechanism for greenhouse gas mitigation, as reusables have smaller CO2 impacts than their single-use alternatives, which are proved to be beneficial to those communities impacted the most by the effects of climate change. At Upstream, we believe reuse is a part of the solution to help move our society away from its current throwaway paradigm. In addition, we believe it can also help create indisposable communities that have equal access to economic, social, and environmental opportunities. With this said, Upstream is focused on embracing environmental justice principles and strives to continue prioritizing this work by helping the wider reuse movement understand the strong connection that exists between reuse and environmental justice. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the environmental justice movement and hope you continue learning and discovering about Black leadership this Black History Month and beyond. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.